Well, if you're finding yourself in church today for the first time or the first time in a long time, I'm going to tell you, I think you've picked a really good day to try out church. However, I'm going to let you know that uh, my goal and my hope isn't that you're just going to try church. I hope that you're going to try God. And not just try a God, but try the God, the God of Scripture, the God of the Bible. See, we started unpacking this series, started this last week, out of the box. And it started looking at what, what would it look like if we were to let God out of the box. In fact, last week we, we talked specifically about unboxing God, of how do we get God out of the box that we've put him in. Because we end up putting him in a box based on our past experiences and based on our current beliefs. That, that between those two things, we go, okay, this is who God is. And then we end up boxing him in. And sometimes we box him because what we experience, we, we pray about something and God didn't intervene like we asked him to. And we're thinking, okay, God, you must not be good enough or you must not care enough or you must be upset with me. And so I don't know how much I'm going to want to have to do with you that, that we end up interacting with God based on what we see happening with our own prayer life. And so we do, we, we begin to put God in a box. Sometimes what we do is, is we put God in a box and there's different shapes and different sizes. And, and we put God in a box because we're going, Hey, you know, you know what I want? I, I want a God that, that I, can, I can just kind of pull out when I need him. And, and it's this little pocket-sized box that I can just keep with me. And, and when something happens and life gets tough, and, that I can just kind of pull God out and say, God, 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 I need you, I need you, I need you. And then we want a God that we go, okay, but I know what I'm going to do right now. And God, probably, you're not going to probably approve of that. And so I just kind of want to put you away and I want to kind of cover you up. And I'll, I'll be back later for you because we, we want a God. That we just have this convenience factor with. In fact, we look at it this way. That, that, that we all want God. We just want God on our terms. We, we, we want God our way. That, that, that's how it is that we want God. But we have to unbox God. We, we can't let that be what we would understand God to be. Because he has revealed to us and shown us in scripture some of who he is. And that we need to allow that to begin to direct us. Instead of letting us try to figure it out on our own. So this week we're going to talk about disrupting goodness. And, and you might look at that title and go, that's kind of an awkward title. And, and you're going, what, what's up with that? And we're, we're certainly going to get to the point where I think it's going to make absolute sense to you by the time we're completely done with this. One of the things I think that happens with why people get turned off to God is because the God that we get introduced to, the God that we begin to understand in our childhood that we end up having some difficulties with that as we grow out of our childhood. That, that here at Crosspoint, I, I love it when, when we go, hey, we, we want to partner with parents. And that, that we want parents that are going to go, hey, I realize that I can't do everything that I, I, I want to do to be able to help grow my kids in their faith. And so they want to find a church they can partner with. Not, not a church that they go, hey, I'm going to leave it up to the church to do all the spiritual education and I'm going to be, you know, silent on it. No, we want to partner with. And and I'm so grateful because when we started Crosspoint, my kids were three and five years old. And, and I'm so grateful that now at 18 and 19 of who they are and who they've become and what their faith is like from this partnership that we've had. It, it's just been incredible. But when I think about how kids that are in church at a very young age and what we do, we, we just try to give them some simple understandings of God. Well, one of those simple understandings that we might give a child would be something like this. God helps me to be good. It's, it's just a simple understanding. And, and, and they, they can hear that. And you know what happens? When, when, a, when a preschooler or a kindergartner or a second grader, when they hear this, they're like going, 
I, I, I like that God. <laughs> and you know why I think they like that? It's because they're going, I like that God because um, I got in trouble already this weekend. trouble and so they they learn this and they they hear this like going i love this i I love this god in fact when when their parent comes to pick them up from church and the parent says this is what parents often do especially when they're really young hey what did you learn today and they go i learned that god helps me be good and the parents are excited the kids are it's it's just a win-win right it's like okay things are going to get better right And, and and so the kids talk about it the kids even pray about it the kids even begin to feel a conviction that god helps me be good but you know what happens with kids they grow up. You know what they grow up to be? Adults. And you know what happens? If we don't keep growing in our faith as we grow into adulthood, we'll end up outgrowing what we think God is. And then we'll outgrow that because we get into being these adults and we're like going, hey, I don't understand some of this because just look, just look at this with me. Follow, follow my train of thinking. So here's an adult that kind of gave up on church somewhere in their adolescence, maybe even gave up on God. And they had heard, you know, God helps me be good. And the reason that they go, you know, yeah, that, that's why I'm giving up on God. Because somewhere in their adolescence or in their adult life, what they started to see is they started to see some people that they didn't believe in God. And they started seeing people that they didn't believe in God, these people that don't believe in God. They started to see them as good people. They started to see that here's some people and, and they're good and, and they're doing pretty good with their goodness. In fact, then they start looking and comparing and, and they start looking at them and they're going, Okay, so you don't believe in God, and look at the incredible relationship that you have with your kids. And then they look at some of the people inside the church, and they look at the relationships that they have with their kids or the lack of, and they're like going, okay, well, wow, um, you're like more good with your kids than people are that, that believe in God and God's, God's goodness. They can do the same thing when they look at marriages. And they go, hey, here's a marriage, and, and you don't believe in Jesus. You don't believe in God, and somebody doesn't. And, and yet your marriage is so fulfilling, it's so rewarding. And, and yet here's people that they've got a relationship with Jesus. And the relationship they have with Jesus, it's, their marriage isn't as good. It's just, it, doesn't, it doesn't come together. And they're like going, and so they look, and they see, and they observe these people. And they're like going, well, I, I don't happen with that. You know what else they see? They'll see people in the workplace. And the people that they'll see in the workplace, they'll see people that, that they don't believe in God. But yet these people that don't believe in God, they have a high work ethic and they have high integrity. And then they look at some people and these people that say, hey, I I believe in God. And people that are just saying they're talking about their church and what they did over the week. And their work ethic is low. And their integrity is even lower. And and, and this crisis comes into mind because like like they're going, wait a second, I I, I thought God helps me to be be good. But yet I see people that that believe in God and, and they're not very good. And I see people that don't believe in God, and yet they are good. In fact, their goodness is better than others. And so while they remember this, God helps me be good, they start seeing this and observing something totally different. And so they become convinced, you don't need God to be good. And they they begin to be convinced of this. And and what they start to realize is that, that they realize that you don't have to be godly people to be goodly people. I know goodly is not a word, but it makes a point, right? And, and, and they do. They, they start thinking this and seeing this, and so they're going, so really, what's, what's the need for God? And, and does God even make a difference? And so today, I really want to focus on a disruption that happened when Jesus came into the earth. 
when he came and, and he began to teach us things and show us things about God that, that he disrupted some things. And I want us to look at this. And, and so uh, when, I, when I think about this whole disruption, I, I think that we're all familiar with, with, with disruptors. And, and, and one of the areas that we're, dis, that we're familiar with these disruptors is in the marketplace. That there, there's these different marketplace disruptors that, that we've all experienced. I think of one of these disruptors that, that probably most of the people in this room, that, that, that you are now part of this disruptor that, that started to happen about a dozen years ago. Smartphones. And, and most of you guys in this room, you, you carry a smartphone. And, and if you're somebody that you're my age or, or even a little bit younger than me, you've got kids maybe. And, and you know with our smartphones, you know what it disrupted? The yellow pages. It disrupted the white pages. It, it wasn't biased, right? It, it just disrupted these. It, and our kids are like, yellow pages, what's that? They're like, what are you laughing at? I, I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about. Because they, they don't know that. You know what else it disrupted? Directory assistance. You remember that? A dollar every time, you know? you like going, hey, you know, I got a smartphone and my cell phone's cheaper now. <laughs> I got unlimited texting and it's cheaper because you're not using this whole directory assistance. It was a market disruptor see we're familiar with these disruptors netflix streaming media it was a disruptor that there are people that they're, they're cord cutters that they, they don't have cable they don't have satellite and they're just using streaming and it was a total market disruptor with what's going on and you know one of the things that disrupted again our kids are like what's that blockbuster it total totally disrupted it you know, you know, we're familiar with Blockbuster, right? Because we, we, we have these Blockbuster memories, right? That, that, that we would go to Blockbuster, and as we got to Blockbuster, 48 minutes later, we would leave with a movie that we really weren't satisfied with, right? And, and, and before we left, we had st stood over by the return, and every time you heard something drop from outside, you're like going, can you check and see if that's, because you knew what you wanted to watch. And, and, and you were waiting, you know, and then whenever you would return it, remember that little sticker? Please be kind and... Yeah, you remember that? I mean, we, we, like our kids like, rewind, what's that? You, you know, they, they just don't, it's, it's just a total disruptor. Here's another disruptor. Uber. Uber. There, there are probably people in this room that you've never been in a taxi, but yet you've been in an Uber. That you're like, oh, I'd never call a taxi. But you're like, but Uber? Oh, I don't mind Ubering with something. You know, it, it's, just, it's just been a total disruptor to transportation, to mass transportation. Airbnb. It's disrupting the hotel industry. That, that people are opening up their homes, whether it's their second homes, whether it's a room in their home, whether it's an addition to their home, and they're saying, hey, here's a place that you can stay. And it's disrupting the way that, that people are traveling and where it is that they are staying. And, and the hotel industry is being disrupted for this. Here's one that, that's just now, I think, starting to get some, some serious traction. And that is electric cars. In electric cars, it's going to be a major disruptor. That there's going to be a day, an age, and a time that those whole ice, internal combustion engines, they're, they're just going to keep falling by the wayside. It's just a marketplace disruptor. There's all these disruptors that have happened in our lifetime. But when Jesus was here, there were some disruptions that he introduced, that, that he brought to the table. And so we're going to look at some of these disruptions. So Jesus disrupted people's view of God. It's one of the things that he disrupted. 
that he disrupted their view of God, that, that what they saw in Jesus and who he was and how he interacted with God, it was a disruptor. In fact, his disciples approached him one time and said, Hey, hey, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray to God? The, the way that they saw Jesus pray and, and the things that they saw in Jesus and his relationship and his connection to, to God, they, they were like going, can you teach us? And, and so he did, and, and, and Jesus began to teach them some things. In fact, he said, when you pray, pray like this. And, and he taught them how to pray. And it's these opening lines of what he told them. These, these four opening lines changed everything. It disrupted the way that we saw God. And he said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. It was, the in heaven wasn't like, ooh, in heaven, really? It was the, our wait, wait, wait. No, we, we want to know how to pray to God. Yeah, you want to know how to pray to God? Pray like this, our Father. That's what he is. He's your heavenly Father. That's who God is. It disrupted their view of who God was. That they had this idea that there was this guy that they'd never met named Abraham. That that, that was the guy that God singled out and started the nation of Israel with. They're going, but, but that's, isn't that our father? Isn't that the father of Israel? No, no, you need to pray to your heavenly father. And that is God. It disrupted it. Because, because people were thinking, Okay, but if I got to pray to God, if I need something from God, then I, I've got to approach Him, um, um, my, 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 mighty, mighty one. Um, it's 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 me, and we would come so cowering before Him, so afraid, and go, "We're not sure we've done too many things wrong. Is this going to get us in trouble that we're even approaching You?" It disrupted all of this. That, that when we were, would pray, it wasn't the sense of, "Okay, you, you've really got to got to beg." This guy that's out there that's so mighty. No, you come to him. Our Father in heaven. It's not this prayer that's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to bother you. No, this is your Father in heaven. And he wants to spend time with you. That Jesus disrupted people's view of God. Another thing that Jesus disrupted was people's thoughts about religion. And what people thought about this, that, that, that when Jesus came, he, he didn't come and go, okay, I'm going to go partner with the religious people, and hey, guys, just want you to know I'm the one you've been expecting, and let's huddle up, and let, let's go conquer the world. He didn't do that. He didn't approach the religious ones, because the religious ones had, had missed the whole relationship piece to God. And, and so one of the things he did is he came in, and he completely that, that people looked at religion and how religion is this thing that's supposed to connect us to God. Because what they saw in Jesus is Jesus wasn't religious. He wasn't religious, but he had a better understanding of God than the religious people. He wasn't religious, but he had a better relationship with God than the religious people. He, he wasn't religious, but yet he was able to do far more miracles and healings and things that nobody else could do even though they were religious. He disrupted people's thoughts about religion. One of the things that he showed us. He says, listen, we have direct access to God. Every single one of us, we have direct access. We don't have to go through a human priest and, and get that priest to talk to God on our behalf. We all have direct access. It changed people's thoughts about religion. And Jesus disrupted people's hope in goodness.
goodness. Oh, for goodness sake. Like, like goodness is this, this really great, grandiose thing. And yet Jesus disrupted hope and goodness. And I want us to spend the rest of our time together looking at this disruption, this disrupted goodness that Jesus did. That the goodness, when we begin to see what Jesus showed us, it's overrated. That goodness, it, it is way overrated. And so we're going to be looking in Mark chapter 10 together. In Mark chapter 10, now, now this thing that we're going to be looking at, it's not a parable, it's not a made-up story, it's an actual event that actually happened. And, and, and within this event, you can read about it in two other places. You can read about it in Matthew 19, you can read about it in Luke 18. And when you put all these pieces together from all three accounts, we get to find out that there is this guy. He's young, he's rich, he's a ruler, and this is the guy that ends up approaching Jesus. And so we're going to start in verse 17. As Jesus, <clears throat> sorry, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, he's probably only got just a few people, his disciples, maybe a couple other people with him. And he runs. He runs and, and then he kneels down. And, and as he kneels, he's so excited that he's getting this opportunity to ask this question of Jesus. And he asks him, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that as he comes and asks this question, that what I think he's doing, he's going, you know what, I, I, I want more than just playing the favorable odds. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a pretty good chance. You know, I've looked at my life, I've self-evaluated. I, I think there's a pretty good chance I'm going to end up in heaven. But I don't want to just rely on favorable odds. I, I really want some certainty. And, and I think that he's expecting an answer that's going to give him some assurance and these certainties. And he's just going to be able to now go on throughout the rest of his life peaceful, knowing that he has eternal life. That is secured. Being able to spend the rest of life after this life's over and spending that in heaven with God. Jesus responds and he says this in verse 18. Why do you call me good? And, and, and just that verse alone. But, but let me just kind of sum it up for you what I think Jesus is getting at. And I think Jesus is getting at, hey, why do you call me good? Only God's good. He's going, you're seeing something and you're seeing goodness in me and you're right, but, but it's because I'm God. And, and yeah, there's some confusion there that I'm still confused about of how is Jesus God and at the same time he's praying to a God that's in heaven and pray to our Father in heaven. But, but he is as part of this triunity of God. And he said, why do you call me good? Only, only God is good. But that's important to understand. Only God is good. People are not good, right? This is what Jesus is getting at. So we don't have time to keep going further into that. So you're just going to have to understand that at face value. We're going to move on. Verse 19. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. Now, there's 10 commandments. We find these in Exodus chapter 20. The first four just recently touched on this. But the first four deal with our relationship with God. Have no other gods before me. Have, have no graven, no images, no idols that, that you would be worshiping. That, that, that you would keep my name holy. Don't, don't misuse my name. Remember the Sabbath. Set aside a day we can remember this. This is not supposed to be a work day. It's supposed to be a day of rest and finding rest in God. That These four that deal with our relationship with God. And then there's six that deal with our relationship with people. Now, God, now Jesus is having this conversation with this guy. And he's going to refer to five of the six horizontal commandments 
five of the six that deal with our relationship with others. And so he starts with six, not, not, not number five, but he starts with number six. And so let's look at what he says. You know the commandments. Number six, you must not murder. Number seven, you must not commit adultery. Number eight, you must not steal. Number nine, you must not testify falsely, which is you must not be, be lying. And, and then he doesn't, this next one isn't a commandment, but it's really, it's the culmination of eight and nine together between don't be stealing and don't be lying. He says, you must not cheat anyone. And then he refers all the way back to number five, honor your father and mother. But he doesn't mention number 10. That, that he leaves that one off of these horizontal relationships. Look at this, verse 20. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all of these commandments since I was young. That, that, he, that he was looking for certainty, right? And, and he finds this certainty. He's getting this assurance that he was looking for. But Jesus said, you know the commandments, which he would absolutely know the commandments. And I think he also knew, hey, when you were talking about the ones that deal with people, you, you've left one off. And, and, and I think the one that he left off was one that, that this young man, this rich young ruler, that, that, that he was totally comfortable with this one too. He, he, he was thinking, I, I've got a checkbox. I, I am good. I am golden on this. And what is that 10th one? The 10th one is do not covet. Do not covet. Do, do, not, do not desire for yourself. Do not become jealous and envious of what somebody else has. Do, do not covet. And, and I think that in his own mind, this rich young ruler, he's thinking, well, you could have said that one too, and, and I'd have been fine with that one too. And the reason he would have been fine with it is because he was rich. And he's thinking, I, 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 don't, I don't have to be jealous. What the, I, I'm just going to go out and get it. I'm just going to go out and I, I can just afford it, whatever. And so I'm not coveting anything that somebody else has and go, man, I, I just wish I had that and I'm desired. And what am I going to He would just go and get it. And so he's again, he's thinking, check, I, I, I'm safe with that one. But see, Jesus knew that this one was going to be the killer. And so we've got to unpack this a little bit more and see a little bit further in and go, okay, well, why did this become an issue when it wasn't? Why did it end up becoming an issue? And so verse 21, it says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I, I, I think that as this is being written about, and, and, and Peter's the one that's telling Mark what to write, and so the apostle, the disciple Peter, and I think as he's, as he's sharing this with Mark, and Mark would be writing this down, I, I think that, that Peter in his mind, he can go back and he can remember Seeing the love that Jesus had for this man, but at the same time, the disappointment. Because yes, he, he loved him genuinely, but he could also knew that, that this young man was not going to make the wisest eternal decision for his life that he could possibly make. That he came genuinely asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But, but if you know where the story goes, you know that it does not end well. So, Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. And he boils it all down. Here's this one thing that you need. You've been fairly good, but there's still one thing that you have not 
done that you need to do. Jesus boils it all down to just this thought where he would connect the dots between knowing about God and really knowing God. That, that, that that's, that's the last dot that we, we've got to connect if we're going to have faith is not just knowing about God, but actually knowing God. And if you're going to know God, you're going to experience God, then God's going to begin to change your life. He's going to disrupt you. And this is what you're going to have to do in response to a God that you begin to know. So Jesus says, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. Do you, do you remember the question? So the question was, what must I do to inherit eternal Life. That, that was the question. That's what he was seeking. Jesus says, hey, there's still one thing you lack. There's still one thing you must do. There's still one thing you need to do. And it's not so that he could buy his way into heaven. That, 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 that was not what, what's, what's at stake here. It's not buying. It's about dethroning your wealth and your possessions so that there's room for God to have the throne of your heart. There's still one thing that you lack that, that, that you've got to kick that off your throne and you've got to allow that throne to be where where god is going to reside on your heart go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor he says go without go without what, what you want to inherit you have to go without that this rich young ruler i think there's a really good chance that the wealth that he has is not a wealth that he earned. He's young. He probably inherited his wealth. And he's really comfortable with the fact that I'm rich and I didn't have to work for it. I, I just inherited it. And, and then he asked Jesus this question, hey, well, what do I have to do to just inherit eternal life? How, how can I just let that be something that's just kind of given to me? How, how, how can I get that? Because I really like this other gig. It's worked out really well. And Jesus, as he's telling him, go and sell your possessions. Give the money to the poor. He says, go without your possessions. And if you'll go without your possessions, you're going to be able to go with me to paradise. Go, go without your possessions, and you'll be able to go with me into paradise for all of eternity. Jesus put it this way. He says, and you will have treasure in heaven. Go and sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. So all he had to do was he had to give up what he could never keep to gain what he could never lose. That, that, that was the proposition. Hey, give up what you cannot keep. You can't take it with you. Give up what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. A relationship with your heavenly Father. You're going to have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. That this was what Jesus shared with him. In verse 22, it says, At this the man's face fell. And he went away sad, for he had many possessions. That he looked at, that, that's, that's too steep of a transaction. 
I, I have too much stuff, and I'm young. I've got too much life left. This, I, I, this is too big of a transaction in his little mind. But he couldn't see just how long, unmeasurable eternity is and really what he would stand. See, it brings a problem with our thoughts on goodness. Because, see, we, we've elevated goodness to a place that goodness should have never been elevated to. I, I know this because I've had too many conversations, and you've probably had a few of them yourself. Too many conversations with people that when we get to talk about eternity, and, and when we get to, to have this open, candid conversation, and I can say, well, do you think that you'll end up in heaven? And, and, and I usually get something along the lines of, and you probably would too if you had this conversation, I hope so. That, that's usually, it's not, yes, I am. It's, it's with many people, it's, I hope so. And so I just go, okay, well, what, what, is, what is your hope based on? What, what, why is it that you hope that? And this is what follows. I hope that I have more, and you know what it is, right? More what? Good in my life than I do bad. I, I hope that I have more goodness than badness. I, I, I hope that I have done more good things than bad things. I, I hope that when that measurement, when it all works out, I just hope that I have more good in my life than bad, and that's what's going to get me into heaven. But it won't. That your goodness isn't good enough to get you into heaven. That, that it's only what Jesus did for you on the cross. That when you accept that and begin a relationship with him, that's the only way you're going to get into heaven. See, goodness, it's a great liar. And it lies to us and it tricks us into thinking that, that we can rely on our goodness over God's greatness. And this rich young ruler, he was banking, literally, banking on his goodness as he approached Jesus. And Jesus met him where he was and started talking about these are the things you must do. Check, 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 check. Then go and give away all your possessions. Give it to the poor. Then come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. And he walked away sad. Because what he treasured on earth was keeping him from receiving treasures in heaven. Jesus disrupted goodness. And you need to understand that Jesus didn't suffer and sacrifice his life so that you could be a good person. Right? That Jesus, he didn't suffer and sacrifice his life so that you could be a good person. He didn't do that. Instead, when we look and understand what Jesus was up to, that Jesus suffered and sacrificed his life so that you could be a new person. So that you could be made new in Christ. And not because of your goodness, but his greatness. One last passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 16. Paul's writing this. He's writing to some believers. And he says, so we've stopped evaluating others from 
a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently we know him now. We know a lot more about goodness and, and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Verse 17. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. And the old life has gone and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him, of helping people be made right with God. He's given us this task to share the hope of Christ, not the hope of goodness, the hope of Christ, to know about how we can be reconciled. Verse 19, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. Jesus didn't come to be an accessory for your life. He didn't come to be this accessory that you're just going to kind of pull out this box when you need it, put it away when you don't want. He didn't come to be an accessory for your life. That Jesus came to give you life. That's why he came. One of the things that we do here at Crosspoint is whenever somebody makes a decision for Christ here in our auditorium, we encourage them to go by our next steps. Pick up a little gift bag that we have, and, and in there we've got, here's a way for you to begin to read some devotionals. Here's a little pamphlet can walk you through. Here's some next steps that, that you could be taking. We give them this book right here, and this book is called How Good Is Good Enough. It's written by a guy named Andy Stanley, a pastor out of a church in Georgia. Incredible book. But, but we give this away in there. And, and, and this book, How Good Is Good Enough? It's, it's just a thin little book that, that most people could read this in less than half an hour. And he does such an incredible job of addressing and answering how good is good enough. But, but if you're not going to read it, let me give you the, we called it Cliff Notes back in the day, but, but I'll give you the Cliff Notes on it. And that is, there is no measure of goodness that is good enough. There, there isn't. And, and he does such a good job of showing that and outlining that and showing us, well, then what does it take? What, why is it that it takes this relationship, this trust, this hope, this faith in Jesus? But I want to do something today. And that is, I don't want to limit that we would give this book to somebody that's going to go, I'm making a decision today to trust in Jesus. That, that we will give you this book, not the gift bag, not with everything else in but we will give you this book at our next steps area. If you walk out of here and you go over there and let them know, hey, I, I want to get a copy of that book, then we'll just give it to you. We only get to do this because you guys are generous and allows us to be able to do stuff like this. But I just want to give it to you because I think it will help you so much in your understanding to how Jesus disrupted goodness. Will you pray with me? I, I, I want to ask you this morning, just everybody's head bowed, are you somebody this morning that, that you came in here relying on your goodness? That, that you came in here this morning hoping that you're somebody that you've got more good in your life than bad, then that's what's going to give you the security that's going to make you feel like, okay, I, I'm going to be able to get to heaven. Because if that is you, then I hope that your eyes and your heart have been opened and that you can see that, that your goodness will never be good enough. But Jesus' greatness is. And he came to offer us life. 
He came to offer us a new life so that we could be a new person in him. And so if you're somebody that today, you're willing to set aside your goodness of what it is that you want to hope in, and you want to take hold of the hope that we can only have in Jesus for what he did, that I want to invite you to, to make that decision. I want to invite you to, to say a prayer, a commitment prayer to your heavenly father, letting him know that, that you trust what he has done in sending his son for you. And if that's you, would you just right here in the silence of this room, in the silence of your heart, would you just repeat this prayer? Just repeat it silently. Heavenly Father, thank you for being that for me. That you are God and you are my Heavenly Father. Today, I confess, I admit that, that I'm a sinner, that I have faults, I have shortcomings, I don't measure up to my own standards, and I certainly haven't measured up to all of yours. And I ask you to forgive me of that. And I trust Jesus. I trust because of what you did for me on the cross, giving your life, overcoming death. I trust your offer for me, and I accept that today. Come inside me and make me a new person. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.